So we are going to open up God's Word. We're going to read God's Word, and then um, I'm going to give a message in the book of James, chapter 1. So uh, we stay standing to honor the reading of God's Word. And this is God's Word. James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your grace that reaches to us, that you have spoken to us. You are there, you exist, and you engage us by your grace for our good and flourishing. So today, Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at your word, would you soften our hearts? Would you give our minds clarity? Would we see the beauty, the loveliness of Christ? And would we live in accordance by the power of your spirit? So would you help me this morning to bring something beautiful, good, and true to my brothers and sisters through your word, by the power of your spirit? It's in the name of Christ that I pray. Amen. Amen. You all may have a seat. Is our culture here a pearl culture? Does our church family have a pearl culture? Is our leadership pearl culture leadership? Is our parenting pearl culture parenting? Is our apprenticeship pearl culture apprenticeship? Now, what does this mean, pearl culture? Well, this has to do with how we respond to trials in our lives. It seems to me as those who follow Jesus, who, those who follow a crucified king, as those who follow him, our suffering savior, that should affect, that should, affor- uh, that should form, that should transform how we face the trials in our lives. And James seems to believe the same thing. Being an apprentice to Jesus reforms, reshapes the way we respond to the trials that we face in life. So as James begins his Proverbs-like Sermon on the Mount-esque letter that we know as the letter of James, he addresses the trials that we will surely face and then how we are to wisely respond to them. See, James is calling the churches that are scattered all over the Mediterranean world and beyond to have a pearl culture. Again, what is meant by that? Well, I will explain, but let's have James lead us there with the the wisdom literature that he writes. So, into the book of James, we'll work through this verse by verse. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. 
So as we learned last week, remember that this James is the brother of Jesus. He is the son of Mary. This means he grew up in the same household as Jesus. They might have shared a room. He ate breakfast with Jesus, had lunch with Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. And, and this is what he says. He says that he is the servant of the Lord Jesus. He confesses that his brother is the Son of God. That's incredible. That his brother, the one he saw through all the ups and downs of childhood and adolescence, that his brother is the Lord of creation. That his brother is the Messiah, <clears throat> the long-awaited hero that the scriptures have pointed to all along. This is an incredible miracle. And, and, and notice the note of humility that he starts out with. He, he doesn't do some name-dropping bragging going, hey, it's James, you know, the brother of Jesus. Listen to me. Instead, he humbles himself and he says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it starts the note of humility, which is wise to begin with. Now, he tells us the, this letter is to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. This is a way of saying it's to all of God's people scattered all over the Mediterranean world. This is uh, alluding back to the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered through various conquests by the, the Syrians and the Babylonians and God's people were scattered all over the world. Well, here he's saying this letter is to all the churches that are scattered all over. So he's writing to a church that is dispersed and is oppressed throughout the Mediterranean world. And he's writing to them in order that they might live well. He's writing to them in order that they might live well in God's world according to his word. This is what wisdom is. This is what we talked about last week. James is obsessed with wisdom literature. He's writing in accordance with that tradition. He wants God's people to live well in his world according to his word. He wants them to have a chokmah, wisdom, which is the art or the skill of living in accordance with reality. Now, as James turns his reader's eyes to wisdom, he begins by talking about trials. And as he does, as we read these words, I think it's fair to ask. It's almost needful to ask, is, is this guy rational? Is this guy irrational? Is he a naive optimist? Is he deluded? Worse, is he deceptive? Somehow, somehow wicked? I mean, look what he says. Look what he says. James, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Just stop. Really? It seems a bit odd. So maybe he's a masochist, right? Reveling in pain and the drama of the chaos of it all. Or maybe, maybe, maybe this is it, maybe he's well-intentioned, but he simply doesn't have enough life experience. Uh, maybe he's buffered from hardship, you know, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and, and he's just over here, and he doesn't understand what it's really like to face trials. None of these are true. He's not irrational. In fact, he's seeing reality as it is. He is dispensing wisdom. He's not a naive optimist. He's a, he's a gospelist. He's an apprentice of Jesus. He's not deceiving. He's a truth speaker. He's not a masochist, and he's not unacquainted with trials. James led the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He and his church knew famine. He and his church knew poverty. He and his church knew controversy, theological disagreement. 
He was hated by Jewish friends and possibly some family members who thought he was a blasphemer. Members of his church were threatened, imprisoned, and killed. James himself was killed, martyred for his faith in Jesus. He lived in a pressure cooker called Roman-occupied Jerusalem. So James has the credentials. He has the, the street cred. He has the, ex- the existential experience to talk about dealing with various trials. He can give a master class in this. So we should listen. Now, <clears throat> as he goes on, Note that he doesn't say that the trials themselves are, are joyous, but that we are to count those trials as joyous, to count them. Uh, this word means to, to reckon, right, or to consider them as joy, to see them as joy, to reframe them in a way where there is somehow some joy in the midst of what's going on. Right? He's after our perspective. He, he's looking at how we see the world. He's trying to reframe things. So what he does is he puts the trials under and within the controlled plan of God. He takes the trials that we face and puts them under and within and within the control and the plan of God. And so what he does is he paints the picture of trials within the frame of God's redemptive actions. He places the trials in the middle of God's redemptive actions actions. Now, <clears throat> there's all sorts of things in this world that look like ruin, that look like destruction, but are actually renewal, but are actually rebirth. I mean, we could list them all day long. A seed splitting open and dying. The seed dies, but it brings life. The aches, the groans, the pains, the violence of childbirth that give way to a tender child breathing its first Sweet breath. Precious metal being thrown into a rough crucible, into a devouring fire. It's not burned up, but it's born anew, purified and radiant, now worth more. Or maybe it's uh, the lapidary's knife, the gym cutter's knife, right, who takes a blade and starts chopping away and cutting pieces off of a precious stone to cut facets, to reveal the light and the iridescence that is inherent within that thing. Or uh, imagine with me here, um, go on a, a science fiction imaginary journey with me here for a moment. So imagine, imagine an alien, right? An extraterrestrial anthropologist who's, who's going to be doing some field work, some field study, comes down to Earth. And this alien anthropologist happens to teleport and land first at Stanford Hospital. And the first thing that this alien anthropologist sees is open-heart surgery. Now, how hard would it be to see the cutting into the flesh, into the chest, into the bone, and into the heart of that person as an act of healing, as a necessary trial that will be life-giving? At first blush, it appears to be the opposite of what it is, right? You know, I think back uh, to my, my childhood, I would often watch my dad uh, do, do yard work. And uh, a few different houses that we lived at in Colorado, I had cherry trees. And I remember those days where my dad would take out those, those big clippers, the big shears, and he would just go out and go to town on these trees. And it looked like he was mad at them, right? He was just cutting everything out. I mean, it, it looked like 
just a, a stick with some twigs uh, compared to what it started with. And I always thought, he's going to kill that thing. And then come cherry season, that thing was in full bloom, loaded down with cherries. He was redirecting the energies. He was bringing that thing to life through those counterintuitive actions. So James, having the wisdom from above, says that we need to re-see how we see trials in this life. See, trials aren't the things that get in the way of the good life. Trials aren't the things that get in the way of the good life. They are ways by which we go further into the good life. Now, I, I get it. Like, I know that that's hard for our, our Western minds, especially if we, if we live in affluent, comfortable um, surroundings. Right? This, is, this is hard for us to process. And, and think about how our culture is forming us. Because it's forming us, like, all the time. We spend so much of our lives formed by convenience, formed by comfort, customizing our comfort, finding the, the path of least resistance, removing any irritant, right? Avoiding trials at all costs. But trials aren't the product of a mean God. Trials are the means by which we can actually see the goodness of God in operation in this world. And why is this the case? Why is this the case? Well, here's the logic. Trials will come to us all. It's not if, it's when. Right? Trials will come to us all. And when they come, they will be hard. They will be costly. They will be painful. They will extract tears and groans from us. But we are to count it all joy because, because they are being used to bring about something good. See, under a good and compassionate God, a God of the cross, trials are not meaningless nor fruitless. They are redemptive, even though it is hard to see. So what is the good that they bring? What can be so important that we have to go through all the suffering and go through these fierce fires of trial? What is being formed in us? Well, let's again look at James' words here. James says that the good that comes is the forming of steadfastness. The forming of steadfastness. You can consider this word, steadfastness, like spiritual grit, spiritual resolve. And what this is, is it's increased trust and resolve to stay faithful to a God who has proven himself faithful to us. We've seen him be faithful even amidst terrible circumstances. And that creates this greater trust, the spiritual grit, the spiritual resolve. And this is good, not just because it gives us this grit and resolve. But because this leads to one step further in our journey of meaning and identity and purpose and joy, it leads to, as he says here, maturing. See, the word there is, is perfect, but it, teleos, that word in Greek means like to mature, to become as you were meant to be. And then he goes on to say complete lacking nothing, that you are made whole, that you are integrated, that you are lacking nothing that you are fully human as you are meant to be because of the work of Christ. So these trials, 
they lead to a steadfastness, a greater trust in the Lord, and a resolve to stay trusting in Him as more trials will come our way. And the end result is the greatest thing that we can ever imagine. The end result is that we become who we were made to be, shining and radiant image bearers of Jesus Christ, matured and lacking nothing. Messy trials are means of maturing in Christ-likeness. The challenges we face are key to us becoming like Christ, to enter into his sufferings, to become like him. So we are to embrace trials as means of spiritual growth. We are to embrace trials as means of spiritual growth. Well, James is a good shepherd, a good leader, and he knows we're going to ask, well, how? How do we do this? So he talks about wisdom. See, he's following logic that we often don't catch when we just read it through quickly. So how, how do we do this? How do we live this way? Well, wisdom. We need wisdom to see this way and to be this way. Wisdom is what is needed if we were to see trials with the proper perspective because pain distorts our perspective. Frustration distorts our perspective. Our distorted perspective, being fallen humans, distorts our perspective. So he knows we need wisdom to see properly. We, and he knows that we need wisdom to live in spiritual steadfastness. And remember, wisdom is skill and living, right? Wisdom is skill and living. So we need to see the world rightly and live with skillfulness, live in accordance with reality. And James is telling us that a key skill in living well, a key skill in living well is, is understanding and seeing trials properly and knowing how to respond to them. I think any parent would understand that. Like, we want to see our kids um, respond well to trials because if they don't respond well to these small trials when they're a little child, they're going to not respond very well to bigger ones when they come and they won't flourish. So a key skill in living well is knowing how to respond to trials. And James wants the churches to know this. Now, look at verse 5 on through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the logic goes on. God will give us wisdom if we, if we ask. He's generous. The very nature of God is, is generous, is outflowing, is radiant. And this is so cool. He says um, he will give us generously without reproach. What does this mean? It means God won't be like, you're so stupid. You dumb little dirt creature. Like, don't you know he doesn't berate us. He doesn't belittle us. As a loving, kind, gentle father, he says, I'm so glad you asked. It shows me your love and your trust when you ask. Here. And he pours his wisdom out on us. He's a kind father. But this asking must be in trust, not doubt, not, not in manipulation, not in, in thinking he's, he's mean and, and we have to kind of extract something out of him, but just trusting that he's good. And this word doubt literally means to dispute with oneself, to be in a civil war with oneself, to be kind of torn in two, not trusting him. And so he gives us this, this image, the image of a wave tossed by the sea and the wind, 
It's an image um, of an ever-changing shape. There's no consistency. There's no real integrity to it. This person is not stayed on God and intent on his wisdom, but goes back and forth and seeks the wisdom from below. This person is like a, an unfaithful spouse, unstable or, or fickle. He's double-minded. You see that word there, double-minded? This is, this is a really interesting word uh, in the Greek, daisukos. Di, to, sukos, like psych, psychology, soul, double-souled. The double-souled person. In other words, living two, two lives, they have a double life. They lack cohesion and integrity. It's kind of like a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, living a double life. Now regarding this doubt, I do want to say this. Uh, this does not mean someone who is wrestling with various questions about the mystery of faith while they have a rooted trust in God. There are many things, if we're thinking and honest people, that we wrestle with. There are so many things as we read the scriptures where we go, I don't get it. There are many things that we experience in life that, that, that come our way and, and we're confused and we agonize over them. And so we wrestle with those things. And it's okay. I think, I think we need to say that in, in church sometimes. Do you know it's okay to wrestle with things of the faith? Do you know it's okay that there are, are mysterious Things in here that are way bigger than what we understand at this point in our journey. It's okay. And we need to think deeply and ask the Lord for wisdom as we wrestle through the things we wrestle with. But this kind of wrestling is wholly different than not trusting what God has said clearly and just flat out doubting him and refusing to trust him. They're, they're different. Different kinds of doubting and wrestling. So this is talking about someone who lives a double life. He pays lip service to God, dabbles in the things of God, but doesn't give his life to God and finds wisdom in other places, not God's word. This person is unwise. Unwise, remember, wisdom is to live well in God's world according to his word. If you don't live according to his word, which we find in scripture, then we become double-minded and unwise. So in short... Trust God, listen to his word, ask for his wisdom, and he will help you to see that trials are opportunities for transformation in Christ's likeness. Now, this came home to me in a, in a whole new way this week, and, and it kind of came through um, this sentence in relation to what we're studying here, and, and it's this. In Christ... We can be in a crisis, but not in crisis. Does, does that make sense? In Christ, we can be in a crisis, but not be in crisis ourselves. We could be in the middle of a blasting inferno trial. The world can be rocking and reeling around us. A diagnosis could, could shatter our expectations. Another round of the depression that you thought was finally gone hits you. A loved one is no longer in your life. You could be in a crisis, 
But you yourself do not have to be in crisis because there is a stability, there is a firmness, there is a peace that God can give us amidst all of that. Why? Why? Because the cross of Jesus assures us that there is nothing that he cannot redeem and cannot use for the good of those he loves. He can redeem and restore even the worst situation that you find yourself in, even the most tear-laden circumstances that you never would have imagined that you would find yourself in. He can redeem and restore and bring good out of that, even amidst your confusion on how he could do it. Now, I do want to say that this is not some kind of escapism. This isn't some kind of science fiction, you know, mental gymnastics that we work up in our head to cope. It's not just a coping mechanism. This is actually seeing reality and putting that frame around all of the difficulties we face in life. I love how Robert Mulholland Jr. um, speaks about this. This is a quote from Robert Mulholland Jr. And in relation to this idea of seeing reality and not this being escapism, he says the following. Now, I don't have the quote up here for you, so you'll have to... You'll have to really tune into what I say. He says this. This is not an escapist transcendence. It is a transcendence of a deeper order that embraces our tenuous and fragile world order and incorporates its disruption, even its destruction into an eternal wholeness. It is the deeper order revealed in incarnation in order that accepts crucifixion and transforms its death into eternal life. See, in Christ, in knowing who he is and what he has done and abiding with him and having his peace in us by his spirit, our trials are now reframed. Their disruption and destruction are incorporated into an eternal wholeness, forever flourishing. Um, what What the Jewish mind understood is shalom, everything as it ought to be. It's what we long for. So in other words, James is teaching the church communities the wisdom of pearl culture. So let's talk about this for a moment. What in the world do I mean by a pearl culture? Well, you guys know what pearls are. I don't need to explain that to you. A pearl, as many of you know, is formed when some kind of irritant, right? When when some kind of piece of sand, some foreign object, maybe even a parasite gets into the the soft tissue in the oyster, actually gets between the soft tissue, which is called the mantle, and between that and the shell, and just gets in there. It's like the oyster gets a splinter. It's like when a pebble gets in between the bottom of your shoe and the soft tissue of your foot, and if you were to walk miles on it, a blister would then be created, right? So because it's disruptive, because this foreign thing, uh, because this this disruption um, comes in, the oyster secretes what's called nacre, N-A-C-R-E, nacre, which is the uh, the fluid, the substance that makes mother of pearl. So it it secretes this stuff called nacre, uh, and it wraps up this jagged little thing and creates this, this soft, rounded shape. Layer after layer of, of nacre eventually grows bigger and bigger to produce a pearl. Now, again, you know pearls. The substance of the pearl is lighter, and it's actually stronger than concrete. It's radiant. It's iridescent. But think about its formation. It's costly. It was produced in pain through 
pain, yet it produces something glorious. These trial-born treasures are rare, and they're wonderful. In the wild, a pearl of great value is found in one in 10,000 oysters. But humans being inventive as we are, we found a way that we could cultivate pearls, right? Pearl farming or pearl culture takes this process of nature and it replicates it to initiate the formation of a pearl under controlled circumstances so we can monetize it and we can, we can sell it and we can buy it, right? So something, a foreign object, often a piece of tissue, is placed inside of the oyster human being puts it in there with some, some tweezers. They put it in between the mantle and the shell. And it gets the pearl growing. See, I don't know, maybe you could say it this way. An oyster has chokmah. An oyster has chokmah in dealing with trials, dealing with disruptions, dealing with irritants. The oyster has a God-given skill, wisdom, in responding to a trial in a treasure-forming way. Through the trial, by way of the response of the oyster, something precious is formed in the long process as it deals with the, dis- the disruption that entered into its world. So, pearl culture is the art of making pearls through trials. And I just wondered, by and large, as a church family, as a church family, as VCC, do we have a culture here that turns trials to pearls? Do we coat our trials in layer after layer after layer of the spiritual nature called faith and trust in our God, letting him do something beautiful within us? Or do we let that trial make us bitter, make us numb, make us angry at God, make us push people away? Do we lean in in faith or do we call it quits because this moment really hurts? Do your trials become treasures or infections in our souls? Do you have a pearl-making culture in your home? Do you let your kids see how you respond to trials? Do they get to see how you respond to trials by turning to the Lord and trust and faith and prayer and actually rejoicing in all circumstances? Or do they see the vitriol and the frustration and the complaint without seeing any of the rejoicing or the trust? Do we have a pearl culture home? How do you know? How do we know? James tells us so. If, if we can count trials as joy, well, then they will produce something good because our trust is in God. Then we are a pearl-making people. If we turn to God for wisdom to help us re-see the trial and respond well and rejoice, then we are a pearl-making people. This doesn't mean we don't weep. Please, please. It doesn't mean our hearts don't break. It doesn't mean that our bodies don't grow weary and we can barely get out of bed for whatever it is that we're facing. But amidst those tears, amidst lying in that bed, amidst being in that hospital, amidst being in that funeral home, there is rejoicing and trust that God can do something even with this. 
But if we count trials as an offense to us, as an inconvenience to us, if our reflex is to complain rather than pray to God in the trial, if it is to spit out vitriol and hurt other people because we're hurt, then here's the deal. We are heading towards infection rather than treasure making. Now, 2020. I mean, I should not have to list any of the trials that we've faced. But we've been living from trial to trial the past year and a half, past two years now. Global trials, local trials, pandemics, social upheaval, racism, violence, bigotry, hate, intense polarization, isolation. We have faced trial after trial. And now here this week as a church family, we've been facing um, a, a trial, working through some sin and some restoration. We live from trial to trial to trial. So that said, some reflections to help us in these trials. So some reflections. So first, please remember that pearls are not made in a moment. Pearl culture is an unhurried way of life, layer after layer of that, that spiritual nacre called faith over and over and over again. So don't short-circuit that treasure-making by living in a mad hurry. Trust in God's timing and in his process. And that means... Trusting him with our patience and our time. It's a hard one for us, isn't it? Next, pearls are hidden within. Just because you can't see the treasure forming doesn't mean it's not happening. Just because you can't see it forming doesn't mean it's not happening. And there will be a season, there will be a time when that pearl is harvested and held up in the light and it reveals God's glory and what he's done in you. So take heart. If you can't see it, friends, take heart. It's just not the season for it to be revealed. Next, expectations. Understand that the biblical pattern is always, always agony before glory. It is always trial before triumph and cross before crown. Always. So don't buy in to a consumeristic gospel of ease, convenience, and painlessness that this world tries to sell us. It's a mock gospel. If we are following a suffering Savior in an upside-down world, we will experience difficulty, hardship, and pain. So if you are eating and buying a gospel that doesn't include these things, you're not seeing Christ. So don't be surprised at trials. Paul wasn't, Peter wasn't, John wasn't, Jesus wasn't, we shouldn't be. Next, in Christ, we can be in a crisis, but not in crisis. There can be peace in the middle of the tumultuous storm. Why? Because the cross of Jesus assures us that there is nothing that God cannot redeem and use for the good of those he loves. If he can use a Roman cross, he can use cancer somehow. If he can use a Roman cross to bring life, he can use that, that depression or, or that, that loss in your life. I don't know how. That's not my jurisdiction, it's his. And he's pretty amazing. And lastly, pray for wisdom and encourage one another in these things. This is not a solo project. Guys, we need each other. There are times where we're sign, cosign. I'm down here, you're here, one of you tells me, take heart. He's doing something. And then we flip you're down and I'm here and I say, take heart, he's doing something. Trust in the one who can bring salvation out of a Roman cross. 
We need to encourage each other, which means we need to live life with each other, which means we need to be transparent with each other and confess and be real and rugged and honest with each other. He's given us this church family as a gift that we would see who he is. So James, he was a pearl culture kind of pastor. He knew these things. Right? He, his church faced famine, poverty, imprisonment, oppression, and death. He knew following Jesus was not a life of ease, convenience, and comfort. He knew it was a life of pearl making, and that included trials. So he can count it joy. Paul was a pearl culture kind of guy. Rejoice always, he said. This from a guy who knew trial after trial, was beaten, shipwrecked, thrown in prison. He was a pearl culture kind of guy, which is why he said this in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. I just, I want to read these words. Listen to these words now in light of what we've learned. He says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. As we go through trials, Christ-likeness is formed in us. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh that we might become like our Savior and he might be seen through our life. And then he goes on, it gets better, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He and James had a lot in common. So one last item of importance on this wisdom of making pearls by counting trials is joy. As the scriptures come to a close, they close with the book of Revelation. And when John tells us of the new Jerusalem, of the heavenly city come to earth, of heaven and earth coming together. When he talks about it, he, he describes it. He describes its gates. And it has how many gates, do you know? Twelve gates calling back to the tribes of Israel, God's people calling back to what James says, to the twelve tribes dispersed, to all of God's people. And do you know what those gates are made of? Take a wild guess. They're made of pearl. Revelation 21, 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Each gate is made of a single pearl. Now that's weird. Why is this? What could this mean? Those gates are made of trials. But not just trials. They are made of the trial, the cosmic trial that the Son of God underwent. My friends, it is because everyone who walks into that beautiful eternal community to live in God's presence must go through a door. A door of precious treasure that was born of suffering. 
a way that was open through sorrow and hardship and trial. Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price through whose suffering we are made whole, through whose suffering we are made complete, through his trials and victories we become overcomers. Jesus endured the cross that was before him, counting it joy for what the greatest trial the world would produce, the shimmering, iridescent, precious treasure of our salvation, of our restoration. Guys, with this understanding of reality and the spirit living within us because of the work of Christ, we can count trials of all kinds as joy. So may we be a pearl culture. Let us be a pearl-making people in Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, that you are in motion even as we speak and you are, are doing your wonderful redemptive work amidst the trials that we face. And so we thank you. We don't understand it all. We're confused and we hurt in the midst of it. But we trust that your spirit would comfort us and lead us step by step by step as you do your treasure forming work in our souls through the trials we face. And we thank you for the trial of the cross and that Christ overcame so victoriously and wonderfully. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.